Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 10 of the Comms Coffee Club podcast. We are into double digits, baby. Woohoo! Um, thanks for all of your support so far. Um, all of your comments and feedback have been really appreciated. Thank you so much. So this week, uh, given that it is COP28 out in the UAE, uh, I thought actually I'd have a special surprise for you guys, which is a, a recap of a LinkedIn live webinar that we ran last month with the wonderful Hudwick Communications. They're a specialist PR and comms agency based out in the Middle East. And we covered everything uh, from communication strategy, techniques, styles, cultural differences, how to communicate in the UAE versus in Saudi Arabia, for example, some of the local slang, language, translations, you name it, we cover it all. If your brief uh, comes or crosses over with the Middle East at all, whether you're leading a team or you work with colleagues, this should be a really useful episode for you. So yeah, hope you enjoy it. It should be really useful. And of course, as usual, uh, please do uh, like and subscribe on YouTube and click the follow button on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, and please also uh, do rate the podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps with the SEO and ranking. And yeah, once again, your support is much appreciated. So without further ado, let's get into it uh, with uh, Mike and Elizabeth from Herdwick Communications. Enjoy. Hi, everybody, uh, and uh, welcome to the Comms Coffee Club live webinar. Um, we are specializing on communications in the Middle East today. Um, and it's with great pleasure um, to introduce Mike Evans and Elizabeth McLean, um, who are the co-managing directors um, of Herdwick Communications, a strategic comms and reputation management consultancy they co-founded last year. Um, they both have enjoyed a fairly long career in communications, um, and uh, and both Mike and Elizabeth have been in the Middle East for a number of years, uh, working both in-house and agency side, um, and Mike's coming up to 22 years, and Elizabeth um, has done 19. So, um, yeah, absolute pleasure to have you here, Mike and Elizabeth. Thank you Many so much. Thanks, Max. Great yeah, to be with to be you. Here. And look forward to the conversation with everybody. <laughs> Question number one, Mike and Elizabeth. Uh, what advice would you give to a PR practitioner with responsibility for the Middle East? Who would like to go first? Well, I'll, I'll take that question, Max, and thanks for the introduction and hello to everybody joining us. I know we've got uh, an audience joining us from across the world. Um, but my advice would be uh, to take time to understand the history of the region by just taking, undertaking some desktop research. But if you do have the opportunity to visit, then do so. Um, there's nothing like first-hand experience, and you will find it enriching. It will open your eyes. Uh, we talk about the Middle East as a collective, but each of the countries have their own culture and dynamics. But at the end of the day, this is no different to talking about Europe um, and not taking time to understand each of the countries individually. For example, it's important to understand the dynamics and different cultures in KSA to the UAE as if you were comparing France to Poland. Mike, do you want to add anything to? Yes, and uh, hello everyone. I'd uh, like to say a big hello as well and uh, thank you for joining us. Um, 
The um, to add to Elizabeth's point, uh, it's all about the cultures, and um, anybody who's worked in international uh, markets will realise that every country is different and every country has its own flavour. Um, I think the critical thing to remember is that your communication principles are exactly the same no matter where they are in the world. You know that uh, base training that you have and the, the way you approach in a methodical and logical way is exactly the same regardless of wherever you are. Um, one of the things I would say as well is that uh, that the audiences in the Middle East can be quite different um, and have different sort of uh, viewpoints and that they're quite fragmented as well. So, for example, when you're looking at uh, a UAE market, you're looking at one, you're looking at several, you're looking at Emiratis, you're looking at expatriate communities. And it's worthwhile doing the research to understand those audiences and the regulations around how you would deal with those audiences as well so that there's no surprises. It's not different than anywhere else. Um, except apart from you would have a broader expat community than you would in most places, which may mean that your communications are targeted slightly differently. Yeah, and and just on those cultural differences, uh, we don't have time to go into all of them, of course. But if you've got one or two examples of uh, yeah of how of how that might differ across the region. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at it from a uh, perspective of uh, the UAE as a market, which is one that uh, uh, both Elizabeth and I are very familiar with, um, if you're as uh, uh, promoting products, uh, let's say flight products or travel products to an Emirati community, it would be very different than if you were doing it from an expatriate community who may be more uh, looking for uh, travel to go home, uh, a once-a-year trip, um, uh, and a, an escape to find uh, other places around the region. Uh, whereas if you're looking at sort of an Emirati community, it might be more about business travel, it might be more about uh, where they would take their family on uh, holiday, uh, etc. So, and how you would target them is obviously very different. Uh, the different communities have very different uh uh, uh, media uh, landscapes, and Elizabeth will touch on that a little later when it uh, when it comes to actually looking at the media itself. Mm, mm. Um, and in light of recent events in the region, uh, is that approach still applicable? Yes, yeah, it is. Um, I, I think in light of recent events, uh, it, it makes you think about communications uh, in a broader sense. But regardless of wherever you are geographically these days, if you're going to launch a communications campaign, you must always have a communication a crisis communications plan to go along with it. You know, environments change very quickly today. Um, the environment changes very quickly and you need to assess whether you would um, continue your communications, change them slightly uh, or uh, look at how you would approach them differently. Um, a good example of this would be uh, a few years ago, uh, I, I was working with um, with one of the UAE carriers and um, who flew to Ethiopia. Um, and Ethiopian Airlines had a tragic air accident. Um, and at the time, that uh, airline that I worked for was uh, running advertising campaigns and, and activity in the market. Um, quickly, we withdrew the advertising. We uh, changed the tone of what was happening uh, because it was just not appropriate in that market to be to be communicating those kind of things. Um, nor did you want to have your um, ad, which was go on holiday, have a wonderful time next to a picture of an aircraft which had just crashed. So... No matter where you are, I think if you're launching a campaign or you're launching communications activities, you need to be fully aware of what is going on around and you need to uh, 
uh, make sure that you are fast afoot and that you can move quickly and actually uh, put things in place that mitigate the risks that could be associated with your communications. I know Elizabeth's got some thoughts on that as well. Well, I was going to say, if you look at it in terms of uh, James Brunig's PR theory, which I'm sure lots of people are familiar with, uh, performing that environmental spanning role um, by looking at what's going on outside um, but and interpreting that for your internal stakeholders aligns to the company um, and the insights that you have by working for the company. But you, you need to use it as an early warning system, as Mike said, for issues um, to allow your company to manage future risks. Um, but at the end of the day, um, wherever you are in the world, uh, PR is a strategic discipline and you should have a seat at the decision making table. Um, I know that some recent research that the CIPR has done showed that actually there were only three PR directors um, in the FTSE 100 who had a seat at that table. So I do think that our industry needs to do more and to go further. I mean, here in the region, we've got a large communications community and uh, a lot of my colleagues are sitting in the boardroom, um, but but we need to see more of that. Mm, mm. Um, I, and when it comes to... Um, yeah, um, and when it comes to some of those crises and that sort of crisis communications, just thinking about everything that's going on at the moment, as a corporate, should you be articulating a position in the Middle East? Uh, well, it's, that's a very interesting one. Um, and I think what we need to bear in mind is um, we're dealing with commercial entities. We're not dealing with political organisations. So if you do decide to form a voice on um, a, a situation that is occurring, um, you need to understand why you're doing it. Um, if you haven't got a clear reason to, to, to participate, then question. Um, also, if you do have a reason to participate and you have a reason where you feel you need to put your voice across, then you need to scenario plan what the implications are for you, for your customers, for your staff, for your investors, and for your stakeholders of broader uh, uh, group, you need to know exactly what could happen so you can plan uh, against it or plan to mitigate any risks that sort of come from this. Um, if you remain silent, that's also a statement in itself. And uh, again, you need to think about the implications of what you're doing, but know your motivations, agree them clearly, and then execute them based upon that plan. The other risk that you've got as well is that um, you've got staff who are based uh, across the region um, who have views and who have opinions. Um, and they can inadvertently often speak on behalf of the organisation, especially in social media. And that can lead to situations where they come under uh, attack verbally um, or in social or that feel they suddenly feel threatened and also can put the organization in a position that it really does not want to be in and we would therefore advocate having strong social media guidelines in place that would identify what the rules are that a member of staff can uh, talk about and how they position themselves against the company uh, and it's not really to keep them quiet it's to make sure that they uh, can uh, uh, that they could be protected um, uh, so that they don't come to harm. Uh, a, a recent example as I saw of this was during the wildfires in Greece. Uh, this summer, there was one airline um, 
who was working hard to try and get everybody home. Uh, but there's lots of frustration with passengers. And a member of staff sort of jumped onto um, this social debate and said, hold on a minute, you're being totally unfair. I've not seen my husband in four days. It's just completely unfair. And this member of staff got completely destroyed online. And it's having the, the knowledge to, to give to your staff of the exposure that they can put themselves in and also the view and perceptions they can give of the company. Mm. Elizabeth, any thoughts? Yeah, I'd just like to, to add to that, um, that there are probably some scenarios um, that many practitioners um, won't face on, that we will face here on a day-to-day -day basis. But I'm sure some colleagues may, may have a view on that, of course. Um, but two example, an example that Mike and I were involved in were some civil unrest um, situations with employees on the ground. Um, leaving the media relations and the family assistance side uh, to one side, um, and if we just focus on the internal communication side, um, we were in the scenario where um, we uh, there were employees on the ground, there was civil unrest, but we did communicate to colleagues uh, that uh, the colleagues were there, the situation were, was unstable, um, but we did provide regular updates and then we were able to communicate that those colleagues had been uh, safely evacuated. But the, we say, faced a, a similar situation in a different country, uh, but it was very volatile. Um, and in order that there was not a risk uh, to those employees that were on the ground and uh, teams were working to evacuate them, uh, we we didn't communicate to other colleagues um, to ensure that there was no risk until they reached safety. But then we did provide uh, communications to colleagues to say that they had been evacuated safely. So I think, as Mike said earlier, it's important that you think about all the scenarios that you could face um, in, 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 in your own communications plans. Um, have that Do that thinking ahead of time, um, but you do need, as in any situation, you need mm. to be ready to adapt and respond to the situation on the ground. Yes. Would you, uh, would you almost have... Uh, segmented employee groups for your communications by country in the Middle East? How how do you, uh, yeah, how do you normally put that plan together? Yeah, I mean, you, you need to really look at all of your stakeholder groups and then to understand the dynamics within that. Absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right, Max. I mean, just to, just to, I think it's more about, not so much about the messaging, but it's about how you actually um, communicate with that audience. Um, and, you know, you might find if you've got a community which is um, uh, heavily operational and uh, you can easily talk to them, then town halls are much more appropriate than maybe an email, which they won't see whilst they're working. So uh, I think it's more about the message, the message needs to be consistent and clear, but how you deliver it needs to be tailored very much to those stakeholder groups. Sure, sure. Um, now moving on to the um, next question, um, specifically talking about campaigns in the region, what considerations should you take into account when planning one? Well, I think for me, planning and preparing is key to success as in anywhere in the world. 
but having that understanding of the market, having a mutual dialogue with your audiences, but you do need to take into account any legal and cultural frameworks within your own communications plans that are applicable to those respective markets. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, we've talked about your audiences, um, but in a role uh, that I previously held, for example, I didn't always have the opportunity uh, to visit uh, a country where I might be launching operations. But what I did do is where technical teams might go in advance, I used to brief them on my requirements so though they weren't communications experts, but they, they did quickly uh, learn over time as to the types of things that we were interested in. I did brief them on our requirements so that they could share some insights uh, and then they would come back and brief me and I would build that into our communications plan. And that definitely helped where there might not always be the opportunity uh, to visit a market ahead of any planned launch. Mm-hmm. I also think... Um... If you, uh, as individuals, we have views of how things are done. And I think it's very important as communications practitioners in the region that rather than looking at our own personal view or stance or moral imperative uh, for these actions, we follow the brand values of the organisation that we adopt. And I think that's a principle when you're to any country that you're not um, necessarily uh, au fait with the culture. So stick to your corporate values, take the regulation as a framework, as, a, as, as the rules of the game, the box that you're going to mm. operate within, mm. um, and then put your campaign together as you would anywhere else. Be very clear about the objectives, set metrics around the success um, so it's clear to everybody uh, what, what, what is going to be achieved from this. You may not find that the standard tools that you have in sophisticated markets like the US and the UK are available to you, but there are alternatives. Explore those alternatives, find out what... Oh, have we just lost Mike lost slightly back. there? Yeah, um, and just whilst it works... Oh, yeah, he's back. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Yeah, Sorry, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, we just yeah. lost you there for a second. Um, yeah. And do you have any? And do you have a couple of good examples of, uh, yeah, of, of what of what those differences sort of might be for people, um, yeah, who are more used to a more established sort of market in the UK or the US, where, um, yeah, I, I mean, kind of there are might... different rules and regulations. Exactly. I mean, if you look at, um, uh, for example, rules of, uh, of operation in a country like the UAE, um, you couldn't showcase alcohol. Um, there, you, you know, in part of the communications, there are certain parameters where, um, in certain parameters, they're much more lax than than they would be in Europe in terms of maybe some of the data protection laws are getting tighter than they are uh, today. Um, but um, it, you, you almost use your principles that you've got within the markets that you come from, apply them. And if you haven't, so, so for example, if you're running a, a campaign in Oman, let's say, you may not necessarily have the data and the, um, and the auditing of, uh, 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 of the results that you would get in maybe the UAE or even Saudi Arabia, or maybe it's too expensive for you to purchase at those market levels. So you need to work with the teams on the ground to work out what success looks like. Is that sales? Is it drive to the website? Is it um, footfall? They will have a very clear view as to what they are trying to achieve and then try and make those measures fit to it. Don't necessarily use the standard measures that we would have uh, in the UK. 
Uh, and if we don't have, if you don't have um, anything available, there is always something that you can use that will uh, give you a level of success. Yeah, sure, sure. And that actually moves quite nicely on to our next question around what are the pitfalls to be avoided for practitioners who are entering the market for the first time? Yeah, I mean, Mike said that what might not what might work in one market may not work in another. But equally, don't come into the market thinking you know it all. Um, I think take time to understand the market, talk to your colleagues um, and, and speak to people on the ground. So I think you know, you, you can bring your experience and your knowledge, but also do take time to understand uh, the market dynamics. Sure. I think it's also important as well that um, we don't translate activities that we do elsewhere in the world into the region. Um, you need to Arabize what your content. You need to uh, not translate directly yeah. from English. It's just not going to work. Not going to work at all. Mm. Why won't it work? Well, for example, um, when we used to uh, write some communications um, that you could specifically one of our, I think Mike and I know one of the challenges was always headlines. Um, Mm. You could write a headline in English, um, but it might not work in Arabic. And you may Mm. use different words um, and uh, the emphasis may be slightly different. Um, but the me- the meaning would be the same, but the, perhaps in the way that if you read it l- literally in Arabic and compared it to the English, they would be different, but you, it would get you the coverage that you would want. But we used to spend a lot of time debating about headlines um, and to make sure that, that there was that uh, subtlety, which I think is all important, especially when you're looking to get coverage um in the in the market for the company that you represent at the end of the day i mean a great example of this is something very very simple that we would say uh in 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 the west world a return fare for uh, air travel now in arabic if you literally translate it it is it is an air ticket with a seat that will take you to a destination and back from a destination so if you were to literally translate the meaning of it, you would end up with copy that sort of filled the screen. Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of Arabization and also the cultural nature, humour, for example, humour that, um, that we may think is, is, is amusing in the UK, doesn't necessarily translate if you put it into Arabic. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, you do need to have uh, good people on the ground who are very competent Arabic speakers and not just the traditional Arabic, um, localised Arabic. Um, uh, regionalized Arabic, slang Arabic, because each of it is slightly different and each country is slightly different as well. If it's a Lebanese form or a, a very formal Emirati form and also understanding which is appropriate to which audience. So you don't want to talk to a, a, a bunch of uh, people who are very hip and trendy and very traditional Arabic, you know, that they will instantly switch off. So the Arabization mm-hmm. is very important. And you can do that by building a glossary. Um, and I we would advise people to prepare a glossary, take soundings, as Mike said, from different Arabic speakers and, 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 and then agree a corporate glossary that you can use um, in your written communications. And, and that needs to be adapted, obviously, for channels because what you might write in a press release against how you would communicate in social and then internally, it needs to be reflected across all your all your uh, channels. 
Sure, sure. Um, and then moving on to our next question, is media relations in the Middle East different? Can you share some insights based on your experience? Yeah, I'd just take time to uh, talk a little bit about the media landscape. Um, uh, they have Pan-Arab publications. Um, so, for example, one of the main newspapers, and probably the most famous, is a publication called Ashakal Alsat. Um, it's comparable to the FT, um, but rather than being printed on pink pages, it's printed on green pages. Um, the newspaper is actually headquartered in London, but it's printed around the world. Um, it's syndicated uh, with the Washington Post and has been with the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times. So the Pan-Arab publications are available across the world. Uh, they are broadsheets. Um, and, and very influential. Uh, we have both Arabic and English language newspapers in each country here in the UAE. Uh, one of the first newspapers um, that uh, were published is um, now publishing uh, for the first time only last week uh, an edition in English. Some of the content is being translated uh, but there's also exclusive content, um, including interviews that are not necessarily available in the Arabic version. Um, it is uh, possible to build a relationship if you're not an Arabic speaker with the Arabic, the journalists working for the Arabic publications. Uh, but the, as they do speak English, fortunately, due to, even if one doesn't have the language skills, uh, but you do need to provide the content in Arabic, and that comes back to some of the points we've just discussed. Um, mm. the on you shouldn't forget the online editions. They have large readerships, um, and you can view, I would ad advocate taking time to read these newspapers online, that they're, they're all available. Get a, Even if you can't necessarily read the copy, get a feel for them. Um, and uh, so that you can understand, you can see the types of things that they're focused on, um, including infographics. Um, there's a lot of the newspapers have spent a lot of money on developing infographics, um, and that gives an opportunity to, for, for you as a PR practitioner to work with them. TV is also mm -hmm. very important, um, probably one of the most important mediums. They've got a lot of business-focused programs, even as if you're an English speaker, uh, you can go on to the Arabic channels and they'll provide simultaneous translation. Um, so, for example, CNBC Al Arabiya. Uh, so that provides opportunities and forums for if you've got uh, senior executives visiting the region. These are, are opportunities that you can build into your communications plan. Uh, we have, again, established radio networks with multiple languages. Uh, ARN, which is a big uh, station here, it's about 10 different uh, channels in Arabic and English, but we've also mm. got Tagalog, Farsi, Marileum. Um, so there really is, through the different stations, an opportunity to speak directly to your target audiences. Um, and I've done many press trips um, looking at uh, really segmenting, the, having the opportunity to segment the audience and, and really found it delivering great results for any campaign we've won. Mm, mm. Um, you have, so, sorry, Max. No, sorry, no. And I was just going to say, uh, uh, and just tapping into those journalists, um, 
yeah, I noted, yeah, and you mentioned, yeah, sort of most of them do speak English. So even if you don't necessarily speak Arabic yourself, but um, making those relationships, are they, do they prefer meeting people in person? Is a lot of it done online? Is it emailed press releases? Do they pick up bits and bobs from LinkedIn, Twitter? Be all, interesting to know. Yeah. All, of the, all of the above. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the, the depth of those relationships can be built over time. And obviously, they'd last longer if, if they've been uh, developed in person. But uh, mm. that, so having a team on the ground is obviously more beneficial depending on what your um, setup is and how your teams are structured. Sure. I mean, I, I, mean, I definitely said to say that the relationship side of things is vitally important. Um, the other thing as well to bear in mind is because many people, I guess on this call, are sort of Europe, North America base, remember the time difference between uh, the region. Um, and you might find that uh, you're getting requests on what is a traditional sort of Western weekend. Uh, the UAE has the same weekend as um, as Europe and North America, but Saudi doesn't. Uh, and other parts of the region uh, are different too. So you might find that the demands on you as a practitioner, you need to be more flexible and more responsive outside of normal working hours to, to be able to respect their deadlines sure sure um moving just, on to the next question go on um, sorry Liz. a couple of other points i'll just mention um because looking at some of the participants that we've got on the call i mean there is a small specialist media here by sector if you use a, a media database such as decision point uh, they can you can produce all of those lists. Um, so there is some specialist media if you want to, to target them. Um, there are obviously the, the international media also have bureaus here, such as the BBC, FT and CNN, all have got bureaus here, either here in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi. Mm. Um, there's a, a lot of money, the media houses have spent a lot of money on some state-of-the-art studios here. Uh, but the newsrooms, as Mike uh, was mentioning, are under pressure, uh, as in the rest of the world. Um, so I think that um, uh, I, uh, there are some challenges to that. Um, mm. There was a time when newspapers weren't audited, um, but this is not now the case. And all the readership, listener, viewer numbers are um, audited um, so you can build that into any metrics um, and uh, with some level of confidence. Sure, super. Um, now moving on to the uh, next question. Um, what considerations are there if you want to roll out a broader marketing communications campaign across the region? Um, I, I, well, when I was uh, when I was sort of in my previous role in-house, the one thing I did was got uh, um, a law firm appointed to actually give me up-to-date uh, information on the regulation in each market because it changes and uh, it moves quite quickly. So we uh, needed to keep abreast of, uh, of what was going on uh, in those markets so that you didn't compromise any of the laws. And that wasn't just for uh, the Middle East, that was uh, for Europe as well. Um, I think another thing to bear in mind as well is that in some parts of the Middle East, you might find that the regulation is is less tight uh, in terms of uh, customer data and customer regulation than it is in parts of Europe. Um, and the advice I would say is stick to your most stringent market uh, and apply it to all of them, because otherwise you can find that your communications can 
uh, sometimes become undermined or you could make mistakes in other markets. It's a, it's a simplicity rule more than anything else. And the other mm. thing I would say is when you're rolling these campaigns out and thinking about the campaign activity is understand the regulation, understand the market, understand your audience, but also use a little bit of common sense. Um, I, I remember a while ago uh, back there was a, a campaign that was run um, in the UAE market where um, it was advertising Greek islands. Um, and um, the, um, the the person who was designing the campaign and working behind the campaign um, was um, a, a UK national and they understood the regulation and about uh, uh, the uh, use of religious uh, symbols. And what they'd done is uh, done a, an ad campaign for, with a beautiful picture of a Greek island with churches on it. And what they'd done is photoshopped out all the crosses on top of the churches. So not only um, did they upset the Greeks? They upset uh, all sorts of different groups of people. And really, it's just using a little bit of common sense and thinking about it. There are many other shots that you could have used and there are many other ways of describing those islands. Um, so just use common sense. Don't don't be so uh, don't be so restricted on it. Mm, mm. Super. Um, uh, just going to pick a couple of these last questions just before we get into the um, Q and A session so um i think briefly it'd be quite it, it'd be quite good to understand what what three words you would each use to describe the time you spent in the middle east well should i go first i'd say dynamic innovation and opportunity for me i don't know what mike will say <laughs> uh i'd go for principled unique and relationship-led i know that's two words but i've hyphenated okay. it to make yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that can count. Yeah. Okay. Nice, super. Um, and then, yeah, kind of just before we get into the um, questions, um, yeah, what would you like participants to take away from today? Uh, I'd like people not to look at the region using stereotypes, uh, but come with an open mind. Yeah, and I'd say lazy practitioners won't last here. You need to come with your toolkit and your arsenal of communications competence and actually use it at its best because it's a place of opportunity. But you've got to work really hard and be very good at what you do to make a mark here. Got it. Thank you very much. Um, right. Let's move on to the Q&A um, section. So um, if everyone could just start adding um, their questions um, to the comment section. Uh, that would be great. Um, and then I will start to see them. Um, yeah, and then I'll be able to add them to the screen. Um, and in the meantime, just whilst, um, yeah, kind of we're waiting for those to come through, um, I'm actually going to ask you a question, Elizabeth, just off the back of what you said around um, around some of those sort of lazy stereotypes in the region. Um, can you give us a couple of examples and um and perhaps a bit of a counter argument to them. Um, well, I could say that. Um, 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 let me have a, a think. Stereotypes. Um, I, I mean, actually, I, I sort of, if I reflect on my time here, and I, I've much enjoyed working here. Um, I mean, I've also lived in the Far East and in Europe. 
Um, but I think I have a much uh, broader international outlook. Um, and I and I think I sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, um, you know, about saying coming, don't come here, think you know it all. I mean, there's a huge amount of innovation here. Um, there's some very good best practice. Um, and I think it's a, it is a dynamic market. And I, I, I've uh, learned a lot by working here. Um, and I think that that is, I, I guess, those values are uh, really what I'm uh, alluding to. Um, I think it's been a, it's a I, I have no regrets about coming here. My only regret probably is that I didn't learn Arabic. Um, I did recently uh, tot up the number of words that I um, uh, can say in Arabic. Uh, my, my, I'm sure uh, my friends who are Arabic speakers will not comment on my uh, linguistic skills, but I, I've learned one word for the 19 years that I've been here. Uh, but I do regret that I didn't take time. Um, I didn't know I was going to be here also for 19 years because uh, mm. the time has gone very quickly. But I do regret not um, uh, learning uh, to speak Arabic. And I think if I had my time over again, I, I would actually take the time. It's obviously um, needs quite a amount of effort and commitment to learn to speak uh, Arabic. And I am glad to see more and more uh, people um, choosing to learn to speak Arabic. Um, and I, I think that uh, that would be, if I had my time again, I would do that. And I think mm. perhaps experience would be slightly different. Mm. Great. Because yeah, of by speaking the language come to. Mm. Yeah, and there's just a quick sort of follow-up question on that actually um, from Michael Osborne, which will just pop on the on the screen. Oh, sorry, Mike, I've completely covered you up. It's a long question. Um, it's okay. Yeah, I'll pop it on to about zero at the top. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So let's just pop straight to the question bit. Um, so, do you think there's anything different about culturally embedding in the Middle East versus the Far East or continental Europe? Because I know, yeah. And Elizabeth, you mentioned around, yes, yeah, sort of having worked globally as well. So just, yeah, kind of maybe some of those differences, if there are any. I, I guess maybe I, I'm having worked in the Far East, I'd say, obviously, the one, uh, and I haven't I haven't worked there actually for a while, but um, obviously the loss of face in the Far East is something that one should be very much aware of. Um, I think the market here is probably quite respectful and polite, um, and I'm not sure that perhaps in the UK and Europe, they, I'd like to think that we still have those values. Um, so I think they would be uh, just reading Michael's question to see whether I'm answering it fully. So I think they would be the sort of cultural nuances that I, I, I would um, consider. Mm, mm, super. Um, uh, and now we've got a question um, from Patrick Pearson. Uh, I'll pop it up on screen. So does made in MENA tag help or hinder with a foreign brand? Um, that's an interesting one, really, because I, I guess it depends on the motivations why the product is made in MENA. Um, you know, from a if it's from a sustainability perspective about local market distance to uh, to consumer, then I think there's a, there's a lot of mileage in it. Um, I guess you're also looking at uh, lots of markets within uh, within MENA and you might find that um, it means something to 
a Saudi who lives in Saudi, who have a product who's made in Saudi, but may not necessarily mean the same thing as a product made in Saudi uh, uh, for somebody who's consuming in Amman. Um, so I think you'd have to look at the motivations for why you were actually uh, producing that item in the country itself and actually build upon those motivations rather than trying to retrofit it. There may be um, completely the opposite. Um, if it's a luxury good, um, let's say it was a, a Louis Vuitton, something or other that, uh, uh, that was very much uh, uh, chosen because it was an Italian made brand or what have you, you may actually disengage that market from it because there is a level of conspicuous consumption in certain segments within the market, especially in, in the higher end. Um, mm. But I think I would look very closely at the motivations for why you're producing that in the MENA region and then actually build upon those motivations as part of the communications. Got it. Thank you very much. Um, next question uh, is from Cindy Evans. Is is opportunity available for practitioners of all ages? Um, Cindy is particularly interested in your views um, about more experienced and older people. Uh, I'd say that there's actually a shortage of very senior PR practitioners here in the region. Um, and um, I, so I do think there's a lot of opportunity uh, across the region. Um, I think people, uh, practitioners that have got uh, experience in reputation management, investor relations, uh, crisis communications, um, I think that there is a shortage of, of those disciplines here. Um, and so I think that that does provide opportunities if you have that skill set. Mm -hmm. And you bear in mind the culture as well is very much respects age and respects wisdom and respects knowledge. Mm -hmm that comes from experience so especially if you're advising ceos they want you to have had that experience to be able to uh, give them context yes uh, uh and just on the technical side of things as well as far as i'm aware particularly in the uae saudi for expats moving over there um is not overly complex um and lots of companies will pay relocation etc um if you've got children there's often school funding etc too so um yeah they do like to try and attract people from the uk and us uh, i don't know whether that's changed at all uh, michael elizabeth but no i think i think that still stands i mean some of the benefits are changing i know some firms don't give you an all a salary that is all includes all of the benefits some uh, employers depending on their terms and conditions break it down to housing as you say school schooling medical and then a sort of uh, base salary so um so, so I, I, it depends on the the structure of the company that you're working for. It can be a very easy place to live, and uh, that can be facilitated very easily by the company that you work for. Yeah, sure. Uh, and do people generally still tend to live in the sort of in the expat sort of communities, or is it more spread out now around sort of the cities, etc.? Well, I, I think the UAE is growing as is in Saudi, so I think um, uh, I think there are. Um, it really depends on what your circumstances are. But I think, you know, this, this, there is such tremendous growth and huge development. Um, I mean, I on a recent visit to Saudi, 
um, I, I really couldn't leave and I hadn't been there that long uh, prior to that visit and and the the amount of development and the pace at which it's growing it really is noticeable so I, I think there's a lot of opportunity here for people Yes, I mean, I know it's only mentioned one company, but if you look at Aramco's career site and the amount of communications roles, you know, kind of there are actually based out in Saudi and specifically targeting people um, from Western countries. Um, yeah, there's an enormous amount of investment going in there. So, mm. um, super. Yeah, so next question um, from Jeannie Dumas. Uh, you mentioned developing a glossary of words and phrases. Um, is there something that you can share with attendees? Um, not, uh, I mean, the way I, I would approach that is take if you've got a corporate glossary um, and then look to to Arabize that um, so that it is it is aligned. Um, mm. But I think if, you, if you don't have a glossary, look at um, perhaps your lang- your key messages, um, mm. some of the the the, the the words that you use in your uh, corporate vocabulary, create a glossary and then Arabize that. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting, actually, because we've, we're running a workshop tomorrow um, for a company in the UAE um, and uh, we're building their, we're updating their glossary of terms. Um, so it's very industry specific um, and it's very mm. channel specific and it's very um uh, much based around uh, the what what they're what they're trying to achieve. So, for example, um, we're looking at how they would phrase things in social media, press release, advertising, um, internal communications, and uh, maybe corporate messaging. And so, we look across the um, the glossary of terms across all of those different points. And first of all. Um, we agree the principles in English and then we debate them in Arabic and then have a look. Is the Arabic uh, translation uh, uh, a better version of how we could describe the word? So it's an iterative process. And those mm-hmm. words are very much based around the brand values. So, you know, there isn't necessarily a glossary of terms we could turn around and say, here you go. It's very industry specific. And uh, tomorrow we're probably going to develop uh, phraseology and wordings for probably six different channels and probably 150 different words so it's 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 very unique but yes. but i think just to make make getting an opinion on the once you arabize it getting a second third fourth opinions um as mike mentioned there are different um, there's classical arabic there's the regional dialects and really getting at that consensus i think that's that's very important yeah yeah, super. Yeah. And yeah. And just on that point, I think uh, you and you mentioned it several times earlier around um, having boots on the ground, local speakers in each country. And uh, I think you also mentioned, didn't you, not just the traditional Arabic, but yes, for the more sort of hip markets, if that's the right word, having some Arabic slang as well. Um, mm, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Arabic slang sounds uh, sounds fun. <laughs> um so we've got another um question from patrick pearson um here and actually just a really interesting one so um yeah i'll pop i'll pop this one back up on screen um so so with the saudis now insisting on overseas companies having a regional hq in riyadh um is there a shift towards indigenous uh saudi arabian media 
and against wider Pangolf media that is published in the UAE? Very interesting question. Um, I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, each country has its well-established media and Saudi's got a very well-established and um, large number of publications. Um, As I mentioned earlier, there are the pan-Arab publications. Um, I mean, Ashak al-Awsat actually is a Saudi publication. Um, It's just headquartered in London, um, but they have a bureau here in Dubai as well. Um, so they, they are, I mean, in, in country, you will consume your local media, but that's why I think the Pan-Arab publications are so important because they do go across, it does go across the region. The television stations, we have our own local stations, but then we have um, uh, the, 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 the stations that you can consume across the region as well. Um, so I think they should be. I think they should both be built into any media list that uh, that you have, um, and and you target it depending on your story um, and um, the emphasis that you're looking for. Mm. I hope that answers the question from Patrick. Oh yeah, that's really interesting. Is there? Um, uh, I guess just follow up for me on that. Is there? Um, I know you mentioned targeting local media, but are there um, are there any sort of inter-country sort of slight tensions at all that you have to bear in mind in terms of that approach to sort of media and conducting your sort of communications across the region? No, I think if you're if you're running a, if you're running a campaign across the Middle East. Um, you know, you can target Saudi publications, UAE publications, Kuwait, etc., and then you can have build in your pan-Arab publications and and buy media outlet, be it a newspaper, be it a tele broadcast or uh, outlet. So I think that you a com- you need to have a comprehensive media list, but th- there's no issue with putting out a press release. Um, in, in 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 across the region, um, I, I think most companies uh, would be doing that as part of their depending if they're an international firm with that international footprint. Um, that 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 I think would be generally in my previous roles. Uh, we worked with journalists in all, all of the markets. Um, yes, yeah. There might so, be a slight difference with that with advertising. Uh, well, there is a difference with advertising in terms of using. Um, um, Saudi styles of Arabic as opposed to um, uh, UAE styles and you need to uh, be very clear about that but it's not dissimilar to uh, uh, advertising in France and using Swiss French Uh, you know you've just got to make sure that you're tonally and linguistically correct in whichever market you're going to. Got it thank you. uh, and then another one from Michael Osborne as well, actually. Uh, I'm just going to put the last bit of the question because, um, uh, yeah, he he accidentally typed half of it out. Um, so um, he said to begin with, moving out sounds easy. Um, how easy or challenging is it moving back to the UK? And uh, perhaps maybe this is going back to some of the sort of stereotypes you talked about, Elizabeth, earlier. Is there still prejudice against meaner experience when when coming back? Um, well, because I, I do uh, spend some time back in, in, in the UK, I think Michael's 
Um, I, I mean, I, I use my experience um, uh, that I've gained from uh, living and working here for nearly 20 years. Um, so in, in just thinking where perhaps questions have been posed to me about the region, um, I, I can answer those based on, on, uh, on my own personal experiences um, and insights. And I, and I hope that therefore uh, looks to move, move the needle on some of those stereotypes. Mm. I think I'd also say as well that you, you live many careers uh, when, you, when, you, when you live and, and work out in the Middle East because the market moves so fast. And uh, the things that you get to do during that period um, is three careers. Um, and as crisis managers and reputation management uh, specialists, um, the, the things we have been involved in over those 20 years uh, are broad and, 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 and quite um, uh, <laughs> insightful. You know, we've, we, we're, we're one of um, a handful of practitioners around the world who've had to deal with a, a tragic air accident and the communications around it. You know, the, the things you get exposed to are... Um, push your capabilities as a practitioner and it comes back to that point I made earlier you know if you're lazy and you want to make a quick book you're going to leave fast because you've got to be competent and capable and if you want to come back to the UK hopefully the first time you open your mouth and you discuss a, a scenario that somebody puts in front of you they will realize that you've got the skill and the competence based on those three simultaneous careers that you've just lived. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, really interesting points. And um, actually, I think if any of some of the answers to the questions today um, you know, showed, it's a it's a complex region with lots of different things to take into account. Um, and, in, and in many respects, um, yeah, probably a little bit harder than if you just had a UK or Western brief. Um, yeah, even the slight sort of nuances in different forms of Arabic, etc., from from country to audience is um you know not something we always have to quite take into account as much here so i'm a better practitioner for the experiences yeah. that i've had for working here as i am from the other parts of the world that i've been privileged to work in so um i i would encourage um though people that haven't had the opportunity to work overseas and i know it's not um possible for everybody but if there, if you do have the opportunity to work abroad, I, I I've really benefited and enjoyed the experiences. So, yeah. sure, super. Um, well, look, yeah, I'm conscious of of time. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, yeah, sort of firstly say thank you very much, Elizabeth and Mike. Um, it's been absolutely great having you on today. Um, yeah, I've I've certainly learned some things that I had absolutely no idea about in the Middle East. Um, well, that's <laughs> yeah indeed so 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 yeah kind of hopefully everyone else on the call um uh, has got some really good bits to take away with them um in terms of follow-up obviously i um i will send a follow-up email to everybody um and i'll include your contact details in there mike and elizabeth but um yeah kind of just for everyone on the call now um where's the best place to find you where's the best place to contact you uh, I are both on LinkedIn and um, feel free to connect with us. 
Um, and we've also got our web website, uh, which is um, just herdwickcommunications.com. So with our and our contact details are on the website. Uh, just just one point um, that I've just seen another question that's sort of come through um, uh, and um, so somebody's talking about uh, about if you're nearing 60 and the visa limits. Um, yes, there's uh, there is a there is a limit if you are uh, getting close to, to 60. However, that, like most things in life, can be uh, extended. So if you do find an employer who is interested in you as an individual, then they can always get exceptions for it. And it may mean that your visa is renewed on an annual basis or on a shorter period. However, there are exceptions to all of these things. So don't be deterred if you are getting closer to, to 60. Um, it, it, the experience can often outweigh that. Super. Yeah, thank you very much for that. And really great questions, actually. Yeah, really super questions. Really thought-provoking. So thank you for uh, everybody for those. Yes, uh, yeah. And thank you from me as well to everybody um, who has tuned in. And um, yes, as I said, I will send a follow-up email to everybody with everyone's um, contact details for me, uh, Mike and Elizabeth. Um, and also there'll be a little follow-up survey in there as well. So yeah, if you could let us know your thoughts, that would be fantastic. Um, and yeah, thank you um, for tuning in today. Um, and yeah, kind of thank you very much for all of your questions as well. They've been really thought-provoking. So um, yeah, thanks very much. And um, yeah, look forward to um, yeah, kind of speaking and hearing from you all again soon. Cheers, Mike and Elizabeth. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, and enjoy. Well, it'll be the end of your afternoon now, won't it? So yeah, um, enjoy your evening. Many thanks, everybody. Many thanks, Max, for organising it. It was great. Cheers, guys. Cheers, guys. No worries. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.